Romans 7, uh, believers in the law. Now, the moment you say law, people are like, oh, where's grace? Believers in the law. Because though we are believers in Christ Jesus, we are saved by grace through faith, the law still has a place in our lives. The question becomes, what place does it have? Because God would have to be a liar to have written something that is true in the Old Testament, and now all of a sudden it's untrue in the New Testament. So obviously that's not the case. So where does the law fit? It must still be true. And so the only thing that can really be changed about that is the way it's applied. And we get now to this beautiful passage, chapter 7, that reminds us how our lives now correlate to the law of God. Very simple analogy given here in these first uh, six verses. And so as we dig in, let's pray and ask God to speak through his word. Father, we are so blessed by you to be able to come and, and study your word, Lord, without shame, Lord, without fear. And we pray that as we read these words, which you authored by the Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us as your people and bless us with the understanding of them. And so, Lord, use this time for your kingdom purposes in our lives as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 7, verse 1. Or, or do you not know, so again, linking what has been previously said, remember we're now dead in our, in our old life. We're alive in our new life. So he's going to speak to that alive state and how it relates to the law. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, remember that God holds you accountable for what you know. And so as he says these things, virtually every person on the planet Earth has some understanding of what we would call the Ten Commandments. That is God's moral law. There are very few peoples on the entire earth that don't believe that murder is wrong. There are very few people that don't believe in the sanctity of marriage. They may have mixed up ideas about what constitutes one, but once there is one, people believe that that marriage bed is sanctified. Most people believe that it is absolutely wrong to steal someone else's stuff. Amen? Most people have some understanding that there may well be, and most people actually do believe that there is a God. And for the most part, a vast majority of humankind believes that God is also creator. And so the human condition is such that God has imprinted upon us at least a modicum of understanding of God's law. Now, in addition to that, in a Judeo-Christian culture, and from that perspective, we have what we would call the Old Testament. And in that, God describes for the Jewish people a very detailed set of orders as to how they would live life. And so he's speaking here to those who know the law, and in this context, he's speaking to those who are Jewish. He's speaking to those who are Hebrew. And so that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, don't overcomplicate this. Once you're dead, you're dead. And so any laws that you understood while you were alive are null and void. Amen? So... Get that locked into your mind. It's a very important factor in how you view this passage. 
You see, sometimes people spiritualize this. He's actually being excruciatingly accurate and saying, once you're dead, you're not under the law anymore. We are dead to sin, aren't we? Aren't we alive in Christ? So aren't we in that sense dead? So there's a place where the law resides with us, but it's not in the Old Testament way. And so he then gives an example, an analogy. It is not an allegory. It's not a mystical story. It is a straightforward analogy of this very principle. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so then, while her husband lives, she marries another man. She'll be called an adulteress. But if he dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress. And though she is married to another man. So he gives a straightforward, uncomplicated analogy that's supposed to help us understand this principle. Because what's being looked at is who we are in Christ. You're a new creation, amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things have passed away, and we're becoming new. You, you, you see, we actually now have a new DNA. Before you had the DNA of earth in that sense. Without Christ, you are part of this earth, its system, and everything on it. And though you have an eternal soul, that soul is not right with God, and so it would be part of that which the Lord would not accept. But because you have accepted Jesus Christ, you now have a new DNA. That DNA is of God the Father. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus in that sense. And as the old things have passed away, you're now a new creation. You literally are a new type of being who is actually suited for heaven. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he has made you alive. Amen? Very simple. People overly complicate this passage. And therefore, my brethren, you also, having become dead to the law through the body of Christ, we've been freed from it. Amen? You used to be under the law. I used to be under the law. The law was held out, it was like the sword of Damocles. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, the sword of Damocles was held over mankind and it swung back and forth and it was said to be suspended by a single hair and at the instant the gods proved you to be unworthy, that sword could come crashing down at any moment. Such was the law of God without Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were justly going to receive the wrath of God. And so the penalty of that would have been death, both physical and spiritual, which would lead to death eternal. Because the wages of sin is death, amen? But the free gift is life in Christ Jesus. So we used to be dead. And so it speaks to this law that used to have dominion over us. Why? That you may be married to another. So now he goes back to the analogy. He says, look, you used to have a former spouse. And that former spouse was the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were married to sin. We just saw you were actually a slave to it, amen? 
And realistically, apart from Christ, very few of us had very little, if any, victory over our desire for things sinful. But because your old you has died and the new you is raised, you now are able to be married again. And guess who you're married to? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're in that time of betrothal. We are waiting for our bridegroom to come. Amen? Anybody excited about that? Oh, hallelujah. The bridegroom's going to come one day. But you're betrothed. You're not just engaged. You're betrothed. Knots already been tied. We're just waiting for the bridegroom to come get us. Know the difference between an American wedding and a Hebrew wedding. We're in that betrothal period. We're waiting, but we're considered married to him who was raised from the dead. There's who he is. That's your new hubby. You may have not known that, but you are now married to Jesus. And he's coming one day for us that we should bear fruit to God. And now it gives us a picture of what should happen if this is true about us. And again, this is a very simple passage if you leave it simple. Don't spiritualize it. God was speaking because this, this subject matter has boggled the church for centuries. Well, what do we do? How do we react? You know, should we become Jews? Remember the, the whole problem with the church of Galatia was, well, we, we still need to keep the Old Testament law. We need to keep the feast days. There's all these other things. So we're being told how to be set free here. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Look, before you knew Jesus, it was very clear who your hubby was. It was your flesh, the world. It was the devil. And you bore fruit that proved that. And so did I. You can look back on your former life and you can say, yep, that's ugly fruit. That's rotten fruit. That's awful fruit. That's horrible fruit. That's the fruit that Scripture says is of the flesh. And it would have borne fruit to death because the wages of sin is death. You see it? You see, he's trying to remind us who we are and why the law is still important. But now we've been delivered from the law. Now notice he doesn't say that we've been delivered from the standards of the morality of the law or the ethics of the law. We've been delivered from the law itself. You see, the law governs what happens to someone. Amen? And I can prove that to you. All day long, there are laws in our country. And the only time that you will ever know the penalty of those things is when you do something wrong. But the laws still stand. They govern you every day. Whether you are affected by them or not depends on whether you obey them or not. And so in that sense, the law of God, his moral standard, his ethical standard, is still very much alive. It's still very much perfect. But you are no longer under the penalty of the law because you've been set free from that. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we'll find in chapter 8. So the law used to be able to put you to death. The law can't do that anymore because the price has been paid for your life. The standard of the law stands, but the price has been paid to free you from the penalty of anything you could ever do against the law. 
Hallelujah. Amen? Because I can figure out how to break the law. Fairly regularly, actually. And so can you. Having died to what we were held by. You see, now you're dead to the law in that sense. I used to be held by the law was hanging over my head. It was only a matter of time before I was going to pay the penalty of having disobeyed the law. And the proof of that was my former life. So that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. Now check this out. Serve in the newness of the Spirit. Notice it doesn't say the law disappeared. But we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Incredibly wonderful passage about practical Christian living and how the law applies to our lives. We need to think on this passage. You see, because God's grace is so amazing that many people actually like to gravitate towards legalism because it gives them something to cling to that really satisfies one's ego. You see, if I do this and I do that and I live this way and live that way and I kind of earn my relationship with God, that makes me feel good. That's why religion is popular, amen? The vast majority of the world believes in some form of religious expression, more than 90%. Don't know whether you knew that or not. But more than 90% of the people on this earth believe in some form of religion. They are not atheists. They believe in some belief system in that sense. So people are innately set towards being religious. As you study the Old Testament, one of the things you'll find is the incredible dignity of the law. It resolved issues back in the day and time when had God not spoken these things, who knows what would have occurred. Now imagine you're in the beginnings of civilization and you happen to be one of the most powerful people in your general region and you like the farmland that's out in front of you but it's not yours yet, what would your response be without something governing you from outside of space and time? you would go kill those people and take their land. But because God knows us, he builds within us an understanding that there's a moral law that exists in the human heart. He then codifies that and gives it to Moses. He says, look, here's the things that you really need to know. We call them the Ten Commandments. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to read this with you. Verse 9 verses, and now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses writing to the children of Israel. That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I have commanded you all of the days of your life. That your days might be prolonged, you see it? You see, as God passes these things down, he's doing it for some very practical reasons as well as some very spiritual reasons. He says, look, this is the best way to live your life because if I leave you to yourselves, you're going to do exactly what Cain and Abel did. The one who doesn't like the other, going to kill him. The one who wants what the other has, going to take it. Your wife is nicer looking than I'm taking yours. You get the picture? That's human nature. If you don't believe that, 
travel to areas of the world where there is very little law and there is no Christ. That's why you find places on earth where it's perfectly okay for a man to have 10, 15, 20 wives. And he just takes the ones he wants. That's why it's okay for people to go and take someone else's farm field, and if you object to it, they just kill the men and the sons and take the wives and the daughters. That's still in our world today, folks. Human nature has not changed with that regard. We still do the same dumb things we've always been doing. We're a little craftier in how we do them. And now instead of going and physically murdering somebody, we fly a drone over and bomb them with a rocket. But the heart of man is still deceitful. It's still desperately wicked, and who can know it? And so God gave us law, gave the Jewish people law. He goes on to say, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that you may dwell, it may dwell with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is part of the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and on the frontals of your forehead you shall write them on your doorpost of your house and upon your gates. So when you travel to Israel, here's what you're going to see. When you see ultra-Orthodox Jews, you're going to see literally a phylactery tied around the wrist with a box with those verses in it. You will also see on the frontlet, uh, when you're flying on El Al, you will probably see some ultra-Orthodox Jewish men on there. They will literally have the Word of God right in the middle of their forehead. And furthermore, when you travel around every doorpost of every Jewish home, there will be a mezuzah, and inside of it, the Shema. You will say these things because the Word of God was that important to them. It should be that important to us. And the law of God should be that important to us. The question is, how do we relate to it? Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes there in chapter 12, and the conclusion of all these things when it's been heard is to fear God and keep his commandments. Isaiah would proclaim the Lord is pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. You, You see, God loves his law. So we should also love his law. If God loved his law then, he still loves his law. Amen? You see, sometimes people think because we're in the age of grace, we can just toss God's law out. And we can do whatever we want. And I have people actually say these things. Well, man, it's grace. Grace, man. Let me give you a little secret. Nowhere in your Bible does it say you have the grace to sin. There is not one verse in your entire Bible that frees you by grace to sin. It frees you by grace to not sin. To not only understand the law, but to actually do the law in that sense. To live a righteous life. And you have to remember that to the Jewish people, that was God's way of explaining what a righteous life looked like. And so he gives them the law. 
The last command by God given in the Old Testament is remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I have commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. So they're in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. So that 400-year window from the writing of the book of Malachi to the time of the apostles, the last thing that God says to the Jewish people is remember my law. So it is in that context that we read these verses. Remember my law. It's good. It's not bad. Notice God doesn't say, well, once the Messiah comes, throw the law away. Once you're able to be saved by grace through faith, then just take the law and put it in the dumpster. He never countermands his law. He only tells us a new way to relate to that law. He gives us the ability to meet those standards and to keep a life that looks a whole lot like the Jewish people would hope they would have kept their righteousness before God by the law, except we now get to do it with a new vehicle. It's called grace. Amen? So that righteousness, which the law was supposed to cause to come to pass in someone's life, is now actually attainable to us by grace. We can live lives that are pleasing to God. And so he tells us how to do that. You see, in that day and time, those Old Testament scriptures would have reminded every single person, remember that the church first was Jewish, amen? Think about it for a second. Almost the entire first century church, when you look at it, If nothing else, it it was at least 50% Jewish. It wasn't until the Apostle Paul expanded the, the role of the ministry out to the Gentiles some 20 years after Christ ascended that the ministry to the Gentiles really even occurred. The church was initially Jewish. So this question would have been super important to them, and it's still important to us today. God's law had become so dominant to the Jewish people that it literally became an idol. It became an idol. And the reason that we know that is what the New Testament says. By the time Christ comes to the earth, the Jews considered the obedience to the law to be tantamount to being, in essence, godly. And yet the law never had the capacity to actually make you godly. It was just a set of standards. And it provided certain penalties for things that done on this earth. This is what would happen if you broke the law. And in fact, in the gospel accounts, remember what the Jews often said of Jesus. He doesn't keep the law. You and your disciples broke Sabbath. You're gleaning in the fields on the Sabbath day. That was their knock. You know what they didn't say? What you're doing is unrighteous. You know why? Because what he did was righteous. He's healing people of diseases. He's feeding people who are hungry. Those were all things that were commanded by the law. But he was doing them on the wrong day. Of all the Ten Commandments, guess which one was not repeated in the New Testament? Sabbath. Why? The Apostle Paul gave us some insight. He says... You know, I'm going to treat every day the same. And so I'm going to worship God, not on Friday, late afternoon, early evening, till Saturday. I'm going to worship Him every day. 
That was the change. All the moral law stood. All the relational law to God stood. It's just you can now do it every day of the week, which is why we're here on Thursday, by the way. In case you want to know why. We take that very seriously. So the law became an idol to the Jewish people. Paul was vehemently criticized by his unbelieving opponents that were, that were Jewish, that he supposedly disregarded the law. You know what's interesting? Look through your Bible. little test for you. Find me a single passage where the Apostle Paul broke Jewish law. I'll give you a clue. I can shorten your time in doing this. Don't bother looking. It's not there. Not once did the Apostle Paul break Jewish law. Never. He kept Sabbath. He was found in the synagogue on the Sabbath. You look at the book of Acts. Where do we find the Apostle Paul? If you're with us studying on Sunday nights, where do we find him? In the synagogue on the Sabbath. What's he doing? He's reading from the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because he was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now to cap this, you see, the opposite of what he was being accused of is actually true. In every age, you have people looking for a religious exemption, basically. You see, the law could become an idol, or you could just say, nah, it doesn't matter anymore. But I point you to the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 17 and 19. It says, do not think that I came to a... This is the words of Jesus... Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Those are the words of Jesus. So if Jesus is saying he did not come to abolish the words of the law, but rather, or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, not the yot, not the tittle, shall pass away from the law until all of it's accomplished. And whoever annuls the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus held the law of God in the utmost and highest esteem. So so should we as the church. The question is, what does that look like? And so now we have the truth of, of what the law really means to us. Where does it fit? Four things that you can glean from the remaining time that we have tonight. And so verse 1 says, or, or do you not know, brethren? He's giving a tactful rhetorical question. He said, do you not know, brethren? Do you not know, brethren? He said, look, family, that the law has jurisdiction over the person as long as he lives. He says, look, let's, let's talk about this for a second. He says, as long as you're alive, <laughs> you, you got an issue with the law. So you need to figure out how to take care of the law. So you have two options with the law. You can either try and keep it in your own human flesh. That's what religion does. Or you can have those requirements met by the grace of God. Those are your two choices. So Jesus is saying the law stands, but how you handle it is up to you. If you're alive and you don't know Jesus, 
then you got to handle it by yourself. You have to keep it in your flesh, in essence. Now, how many of us are going to be successful in that endeavor? Not a single one of us. Because we all, you get to command one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And probably every one of us at times can say, well, my God is my bank account, or my God is my house, or my God is my vacation, or my God is my spouse, or my God is my children, or my God is my job, or my God is my education. There's something that we put our time, talent, and treasure into more than we do into our relationship with Jesus. And so we could say we have another God. So if we're going to keep the law in our flesh, we are dead from the get-go. It's not going to happen. You just will not be able to do it. And so he gives us an example. He says, so if a criminal dies, he's no longer subject to prosecution. Because he's dead. You can't prosecute somebody that's dead. Let me give you an example. I was in my classroom when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And I remember over the loudspeaker system came the announcement the president had been shot. It was known a few days later that the criminal who did that, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who assassinated the president, uh, he was arrested. But guess what happened? He never stood trial for the crime. Why? Because Jack Ruby killed him. The same is true for us. You will never face the penalty of the law if you're dead. So you can either stay alive and try and do things your own way, or you can die to the old you and become the new you and have a new DNA. You can have a relationship that brings you life through Christ, which the old you then dies. It's passing away. So he gives us an analogy to keep us thinking on the same track. He says, for the married woman is, is bound. Now, I want to remind you, he could have used the married man. It would have made no difference because this is a straight-up analogy. He's just using marriage as the analogy. Is bound by the law to her husband while he's still living. For if the husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. It's just a simple analogy. He's saying, look, if he's alive, she's alive, the marriage stands. But if he dies, the woman is free. So the picture is, are, are you living for the old you? Or are you dead to the old you and you alive in the new you? He's calling attention to the fact that marriage, marriage laws, like all of the laws, are only binding as long as the partners are alive. So the widow's absolutely freed from it. So if you're alive in Christ, you're dead to the old you. You're good to be married to the new husband, which is your bridegroom, Jesus. And thereby, the old law that you were under you're freed from. It's an incredible picture for us. He goes on then to apply the same principle in verse 4. And therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. He actually explains it. This is one of those wonderful passages where you have this incredible question, you have an analogy of what it actually means, and then you have God himself actually explain it to you. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. You've been set free. You see, you used to be alive to the flesh 
And now, now remember, you're dead to the flesh, but you're alive to Christ. So you've been taken from this old standing where the law was hanging over you, and you were going to pay the penalty of that, which would be the wrath of God, one day would be pressed down upon you. It would cause you to die eternally and be sent off in separation from God. That was the old you. But you've been freed from that because you died to that relationship. And you've been made alive in Christ so you can be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And it says that we should bear fruit to him. You see, if you had been set free from the penalty of something so severe as eternal damnation, one would think that you would have a real high regard for what set you free. Amen? That's the picture here. So the old rules that used to govern your righteousness are the same rules that govern your righteousness. Now you got set free from the penalty of those rules. That no longer stands. So wouldn't you think that the fruit that ought to come out of our lives ought to look a whole lot like the righteousness that we were supposed to get from the law? That's the picture here. The verbs here are passive in this passage, and basically it's saying, look, you, you've been made to die in that sense. God's given you the capacity to choose to die to yourself and be alive in Christ. The choice is yours. You can stay alive to the old you if you want. God's not going to force anybody to receive Christ. The choice is yours. You get to choose who you want to be married to. If you want to be married to the world, the flesh, and the devil, you can stay married to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're born that way. The prophet David, as he wrote, conceived in sin was I. In essence, born that way. But the law only has power to condemn men to death for their sin. So if you've been set free, get it. The law only has the power to condemn men for their sin. So if you've been set free from the bondage of sin, you're no longer under the penalty, which is death. So you now have eternal life. When you understand this, you live a different way. Because the old you was in deep trouble. Amen? Oh, man, were we messed up. We were so messed up without Jesus. Because I don't know about all of you, but for me, I thought I was okay. There was a time in my life, if you'd have asked me, I would have said, well, if there is a God, I'm sure he likes me. I probably would have told you that. And most people would give the same reason, because I do good stuff. I was 13, 14 years old. I started working at a home for people with mental handicaps. I, I just, that was the kind of person I was. So I was kind of a good person. I had compassion on I was a Boy Scout. <laughs> Almost an Eagle Scout, in fact. Received all but the Eagle Scout. I got pretty much every award the Boy Scouts offer. That's a good guy. On my honor, I promise to do my duty. I can still recite, recite the scout pledge. I'm still prepared. I have a knife in my shoe right now. 
I would have just told you I was good. But you know what was crazy? I was a dead man walking. I was a dead man walking. I didn't know it. Until I met Jesus. 13 years old, I met Jesus. You see, so now I'm no longer married to the law. I'm married to Jesus. So I'm married to grace in that sense. The law is still the law, but I'm not married to the law anymore. I'm married to grace. Paul actually gives us a beautiful picture of this. And he does it there in Ephesians 5, verse 24 to 27. Notice what it says. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it, that he might sanctify sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word, that he might present to himself, check it out, the church in all of her glory. You see, he cleaned us up. He took us from the penalty of the law and took us out of law and clothed us in a grace garment and put a beautiful wedding dress on us. Guys, we're the bride of Christ too. So get over it. We're not like the husbander dudes. We are the bride of Christ. And we're one day going to be arrayed in the full glory and splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we should be. Notice what it says. Exactly what the law would do if you could keep it. Make you holy and blameless. That's what the law actually would produce in you if you actually kept it. Holiness and blamelessness. You know how we know that? Because on that final feast day, Yom Kippur, that's exactly what would be prayed for. The sins of the people to be put away so that they could be right in the eyes of God. That's holiness. Blamelessness would be to be freed from the penalty of that sin. But now what happens? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and, and to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Guess what that is? Holiness and blamelessness. You have that every day because of Christ. It's a complete total transformation changes your attitude it changes your action it changes your attitude it changes your action the underlying emphasis here in this book is that salvation produces a transformation in us it's it's transactional in the sense that you receive christ but it's transformational in that you become like christ you get it you receive him but you become like him So it can't just be a legal transaction. It's not that you're just justified. The legal transactional part of that is that your sins have been put away. But what happens because that's happened is you start to live differently. You start to walk in his ways. It's this beautiful picture of what happens to us. That's why Paul spent so much time writing to the church at Galatia. Look, I died to the law that I might live to God. That transformed life that we now live, if it's real, will bear fruit. At least some. And I want to be careful because some people say, well, are you judging my fruit? Well, yeah, I actually am called to do that to some degree. Not that I determine whether you're saved or not. But if you've got junk hanging from your tree that's not supposed to be on your tree, it's still junk. 
But if you got godliness and contentment, if you have joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and self-control, if you have love and the outflow of it, those things are fruit. If you're concerned about the gospel, that's fruit. If you're concerned about the lives of other people coming to faith in Christ, that's fruit. You're supposed to bear fruit, at least some fruit. Everyone bears some fruit who is a believer. That's the parable. The basket with some, and the basket with more, and the basket with much, and the, and the basket that's abundant, overflowing. I want the last basket. I want that for us as a church. You see, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is manifest in our lives internally in our attitudes. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against those things, there is no law, right? You see, that's the result of you being dead to the old life, alive to the new life, married to the bridegroom, and now you produce fruit that has that new DNA's imprint all over it. Because you're no longer the angry, bitter, spiteful, mean-spirited, hateful, conniving, stealing, thieving, adultering drug dealer. Did I get most everybody in there? Did my best job. You know what I'm saying? You see, you know what the fruit of the flesh looks like. God tells you what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. So if you've got a new DNA and you're married to a new hubby, you've got a new life in Christ, then new things are going to come out of your life. One day you're going to move into a new house, too, just saying. And it's a mansion in heaven. It's not made with hands. You see, what it really means is that if you have a relationship with the Lord, then you'll be free from the penalty of the law, and you will have in its place grace and action. You'll be living for the grace of God. It's total transformation that comes upon us. We have four old friends that are in this particular passage. Verse 5 reminds us of these guys, look, the first friend you used to have was your old flesh, unredeemed, unregenerate, and you can only operate. If you're not one of God's kids, you operate, period, in the flesh. It's the only places you can operate. Now, your flesh may, be look, may look better than other people's flesh, your flesh may look worse than other people's flesh, but the bottom line is, is you cannot be pleasing to God without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you operate in the flesh. A second thing is your old life was consumed by, marked by, identified by, there was a sign over it said, look here for sinful passions. Now you say, well, wait a second, Jeff, I don't have any of that in my life. Yes, you do. You still have a little bit of that. It's called the old man. But that is being transformed. But the old you, it was pretty obvious. Matter of fact, it was in control. Those sinful passions governed you. But now that you have the work of the Spirit in your life, those old sinful passions, when you see them, you go, hey, that's not supposed to be in my life. And they get replaced by a new way of living called godliness. Contentment, those things which the Apostle Paul would say were great gain. A third thing, our old life, before we got betrothed to Jesus, 
is that your sinful passions were actually stirred up by the law. Now, I don't know how many of you do this, but every time I see a sign, one of the first things that happens is I go, I wonder if that applies to me. When it says keep out, any of you ever have this thing? You immediately want to find out what's in there. If it says don't touch, what do you do? You know what I'm saying. What does the law do? It stirs up in you sinful passions. You want to find out exactly why it says don't do that. Exactly what your Bible says will happen. You see, that's a sign that when you care about that, that you're actually one of God's kids. If you don't care about that, you have an issue. You need to check and see whether you're of the faith or not. If you can see those things, it doesn't bother you that you kind of gravitate towards stuff like that. You see, now I I look at it and go, man, that's not for me. I'm one of God's kids, and I go over here. I do what we're going to talk about on Sunday. I flee. I go the other way, amen? The old me sees the sign and go, ooh. And I figure out a way to go around it. You can ask Connie. I'm one of the, I jump over the wall. If there's a cliff and it says, stay back, you're going to die. It has a picture of the dudes like this with X's through their eyes. I'm the guy. On the other, I, that's just the way I'm wired. It's the old me. And I have to say, you know what? Ooh, I can't do that because there's going to be somebody watching. Hi, Pastor Jeff. What are you doing on the wrong side of the wall? With their whole family standing there. And a fourth thing, the believer's old life is characterized by the unceasing work of those sinful passions. You're always trying to figure out how to satisfy those sinful passions in your life. It's crazy. I don't know how many of you remember your days before you received Christ and what effort you used to put into thinking about, planning for, engaging in sinful behavior. It's like you, you start on, on Tuesday night. You're like, wow, it's party on Friday. You know what I'm saying? Don't pretend you don't know what I'm saying. You know exactly what I'm saying. Your old sinful passions were the thoughts and the intent of your heart. You worked really hard at being sinful. Now, maybe you didn't know exactly how sinful that was when you look back on it now, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're going, man, I used to work really hard at that. You see, the members of his body bear fruit unto death. Did that old way, you were bearing fruit unto death. Your life proved that you didn't know Jesus. People could see it. You wake up on somebody else's, you don't even know whose lawn you're on. Well, that would be fruit unto death. You see, those passions governed you. You didn't govern them. And then finally, we wrap this up. The affirmation of all these things. And I want you to just circle, notice something right there, beginning of verse 6, but now. That's a transitional phrase. Paul uses this extensively in his writings. But now, you see, the old way, the old you, was governed by the flesh. The new way, the new you, is governed by the Spirit. But now, 
We've been released from the law. Not the standards, the penalty. Not that God's righteousness somehow got sullied because of grace, but what happens because you're a lawbreaker has now transitioned. You now go from death to life. But now, we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. You see, before, I was bound to be a sinner. I was bound in sin, and so were you. Without the grace of God, you did what came naturally. You were party-hardy. You were sex, drugs, rock and roll. You were governed by your flesh. Amen? You can say amen. That's what you used to be. It's not like everybody's wandering around going, well, I'm glad I didn't say amen because I would never do something like that. You all did stuff like that. Every last one of you. Matter of fact, if you're here and you can't admit that, I'm going to encourage you, you need to pray really hard on that one. Because that might be a sign that you need some help. Because let us not forget what manner of men or women we used to be. Let us not say that we can look in the mirror and forget what we used to be like. I know what I used to be like. That's why I'm so overjoyed that I'm not what I used to be. Praise God, I'm going to where I'm going to be, but I'm not there yet either. I'm on a journey. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Been released from the law, having died to that by which I was bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Oh, praise the Lord. Because I think about the law, and I'm like, man, I'm not making it. I think about the Old Testament way uh, of relating to God. I wouldn't have done any better than the gang in the wilderness. I wouldn't. Man, Moses would be up there on the mountain for 40 days. I'm like, okay, this is getting old. I don't know what he's doing up there. He's meeting with God. We're down here in the heat of the desert. We got no water. We're eating the stupid manna stuff. I'd have been, I'd been a whiner for Jesus. I don't like this. Tabernacle. I ain't lugging around no tabernacle in the wilderness. You carry the tabernacle. That would have been me. Where are we going to get all these sheep? We need one sheep for every ten of us. I don't like mutton. There ain't no ribeye out here. If I had to relate to God by the law, man, I'd be dead in a heartbeat. Praise God, I'm not. I relate by the Spirit and not the letter. You see, when you start thinking about these things, praise God that we're not under the weight of the law anymore. But praise God, his character has not changed. His standards are still the same. They're high. They're holy. They're righteous. Praise God, I don't have to now die to fulfill my pledge. Christ died for me. You see, because I'm justified by faith through the grace of Jesus, I'm secure now. You had no security in the law. 
The high priest himself didn't know. The moment he prayed for the forgiveness of sins and he put his hand on the scapegoat and sent it into the wilderness, the moment he did that, he turned and went back through the veil. The second he got outside into the holy place, there was already sinning going on, probably in his own life. But certainly in the nation Israel, no security. But he who the Son has set free is indeed amen not because you did something because jesus did something for you for the first time we're actually able to meet those righteous demands because of what christ did on calvary's cross and what happens to us is this it makes us genuinely eager to meet those requirements i'm like lord i want to be pleasing to you I actually want you to look from heaven, if God does such a thing, if we can give him that anthropomorphic view, you know, assigning those human characteristics to God, God's gazing down from heaven and he sees me, I'd like for him to go, that is awesome, Jeff. Not, man, you are still doing that? I set you free from that. I want him to go, well done. You see, so now I relate to the law in love. I want to make my father happy. I want my dad to get my report card from earth and go, wow. I want to, when I get to heaven, I want to get those little bonuses we used to give our boys when they got straight A's. You see, I'd like to do that. I'd like for Father God to go, here's an extra crown. You really did well. Then I'll give it back to him because I'm not going to be worried to wear it in his presence. But I'd like to have one to give back. So the law now has a new place in my life. You see, when I obey now, it's because the law is how my life should look. I should look like holiness and righteousness. And that grace and faith that I now walk in, that law becomes attainable because of what Christ did, and I'm the beneficiary of it. And because of that, I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that grace that has freed me from the penalty of the law and makes me able to actually live like the law should make me look. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture that reminds us of the beauty of your plan of salvation, Lord, that we have been given a new DNA, and that's the DNA of heaven. Lord, our passports are stamped citizen of heaven, and we can't wait to get there. And in the meantime, would you make us Uh, look a whole lot like Jesus while we're here. Lord, bless us with that ability. Lord, as the truth of your word speaks into our lives, holiness and righteousness, would we live that way? Would we live to be well-pleasing to you? Uh, Father, in fact, that uh, beautiful passage that Paul wrote to the church uh, there in Corinth, Lord, that those old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. Lord, help us to look new. Not, not just rehashed, but brand new. 
Help us to walk in that newness of life. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in the blessed name of our Savior and our soon coming King Jesus. Amen.